to and fro, stop and go, money makes the world go round. Those who have more money are always in a better position than those who have less. Yes, we're not saying that money can buy happiness, but it can make happiness a damn sight easy to obtain. Coins, the most familiar form of money, were invented in Lydia before 600 BCE, and paper notes were first used in China around 1000 BCE. But money hasn't always existed as we know it. Today we're going to find out some of the interesting snippets about our ancestors and how they acquired stuff they needed. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. The Egyptians were a sophisticated civilization. They gave the world the pyramids, paper and ink, cosmetics and even the toothbrush. One thing they didn't have as we know it was money. The Egyptian empire was absolutely minted because they had a vast amount of gold in the territories that they controlled. The empire itself was built along the Nile which meant that the land was wonderfully fertile and it made a banging place to grow lots of food. With the gold they made the most incredible treasures including jewellery, drinking vessels, helmets, ornaments, weapons and you know pretty much anything really. It must have been a bloody bright living in ancient Egypt with all that gold reflecting the sun into your eyes at every turn. The ancient Egyptians believed that gold was an indestructible and heavenly metal and signified wealth, purity and prestige. Yes, they had gold for days, but how is it that they got by without money? They ended up being more of a trading nation, offering their golden goods in exchange for stuff they needed. Everyone couldn't have had gold, I hear you yell. I doubt it, yes, which is why they also used stuff like grain for trading. Later, they did have coins and stuff like that, but that's not really exciting, is it? It's likely that you've seen this next currency, but never really noticed it. Since looking into this, I've found it on various pieces of jewellery, and I've seen it loads over the last couple of days when shopping in Oxford. We're talking cowrie shells which can be described as a white coffee bean, but a shell. These shells were pretty much used on every continent, and I'll go through specific history in a second, but first find out why they were so popular. Well, they're durable, small and light, with a distinctive shape, texture and size that makes them hard to forge. Cowrie shells can be found in the Indian and Pacific Oceans with a shitload around the Maldives. It doesn't just look like a coffee bean. You guessed it. Because of its vulva-like shape, it's also considered a fertility symbol. The Maldives had a booming shell industry that provided work for men, women and children. They would whack some coconut branch mats in the ocean that would attract the unsuspecting mollusks. The mats were then removed and dried out in the sun on the beaches. How the hell these didn't get nicked, I don't know. Imagine trying to dry some £5 notes outside and see what happens to them in Wales. The shells were then polished and graded and exported. Cowrie shells were either hung on strings or loaded into buckets to be sold in bulk. In Bengal, seashell payments were made by the basket, with each containing 12,000 shells. Some historians believe that shell currency is the oldest in ancient China. There are bronze engravings from China showing cowrie money with the oldest being from the 13th century BCE, also known as ages ago. It is thought that they used these cowrie shells because they came from fucking miles away so they were really hard to obtain, keeping the currency with the upper classes. Wealth creates more wealth. Shells were so important that some early Chinese emperors were buried with cowrie shells in their mouths. 
Thank goodness they were dead because they are absolutely small enough to be a serious choking hazard. Once when I was at school, I sucked in one of those little millions sweets into my airway and I thought, this is the end, I'm going to die at 15 in an RE lesson. Someone smacked me on the back though and I managed to claw back my life. I digress. Shells were so important in China that many characters in written Chinese language that refer to money or trade contain the symbol for cowrie shell. Obviously, I can't show this to your ears, but it's like three narrow rectangles sat down with little legs sticking out. Glad I can make that clearer for you. So here's a little quick fire round of when the shells made it to different parts of the world. Shells reached Africa in the 13th century through Arabian merchants. European trading cowrie shells started in the 15th and 16th centuries with the Portuguese. During the 17th and 18th centuries, the trade was dominated by the Dutch and the English. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the French and the Germans also got involved in the shipping of cowries to Africa. The trade also got to North America, and the Ojibwe peoples that used to live around Lake Superior used cowrie shells for trade and in their ceremonies. Egyptologists have found millions of cowrie shells in the tombs of the pharaohs. Their resemblance to the vulva, and alternatively to a squinting eye, is thought to underlie a magical association with fertility and with protection from the evil eye. Generally, they are known from female burials in Egypt, but they can also accompany males. In northern Australia, different shells were used by different tribes, one tribe's shell often being quite worthless in the eyes of another tribe. So the value of shells was determined by the law of supply and demand. The further the place was from the source of cowries, or a big trade centre, the bigger value the cowrie carried. This meant that in some places you could buy a cow for only one cowrie, while in other places, where the shells were more abundant, one cowrie had no value. In the Maldives, for example, a person needed thousands of shells to exchange them for only one gold coin. The role of cowrie shells as currency remained until the middle of the 20th century, which shows us how efficient and stable this ancient system was. We're going to hang out in historical Africa for a bit finding out about what Africa and its peoples used as currency. Cloth represents culture and wealth in Africa more than any other medium. It is an asset that not only enhances the owner's image, by literally increasing their size and adding visual interest, but that also converts into other goods. Historically, cloth was money, along with previously mentioned cowrie shells, but also iron implements or brass bracelets. Today, it is still valued for its expressive qualities, displayed during ceremonies and as markers of status and achievement. During the medieval period, a robust trade network between North Africa and regions south of the Sahara created vast wealth and gave rise to the most prominent medieval West African empires in Ghana, Mali and Songhai. Many products, including textiles, drove this trade, which at the height of his power made King Mansa Musa of Mali, 1280-1337, the richest man in the history of the world. There's a really good episode of You Are Dead to Me on Mansa Musa, which I'd recommend if you want to learn more about this lad. Cloth made from raffia or pineapple leaf fibre was often used as currency in Congo. Cloth was a convenient means of exchange as it was portable, durable and divisible. Strips of cloth would be used individually as smaller money or sewn together and become a more valuable unit. In some areas, cloth was used to pay dues, fines, services or tributes, whereas in others it was also used in everyday transactions in the marketplace. Another form of African currency was manilas. Manila, manila, oh. <laughs> manilas are a form of currency shaped like horseshoes, 
usually made of bronze or copper, which were used in West Africa. Manilas were the first true general-purpose currency known in West Africa, being used for ordinary market purchases, dowries, payment of fines, compensation and burial money. During the transatlantic slave trade, Manilas were a frequent medium of exchange for slaves and Europeans became big manufacturers of these brass bracelets. They were produced in large numbers in a wide range of designs, sizes and weights. Originating before the colonial period, perhaps as a result of trade with the Portuguese Empire, Manilas continued to serve as money and decorative objects until the late 1940s and are still sometimes used as decoration. Trade beads, sometimes called slave beads, were otherwise decorative glass beads used between the 16th and 20th centuries as a token money to exchange for goods, services and slaves. They formed an important element in early trade networks between Europe and Africa as they were made in Europe, particularly Venice, Bohemia and the Netherlands, and used in trade in Africa. The production of slave beads became so popular that literally tons of these beads were used for this purpose. The beads were popular as glassmaking was uncommon in Africa, making them unusual and precious. Beads were used as ballast in slave and trade ships for the outbound trip. The beads and other trade items were exchanged for human lives, as well as ivory, gold and other goods desired in Europe and around the world. It's awful that something so beautiful can be used for something so awful as slavery and that someone looked at the beads and thought, yeah, that's worth a human life. In the words of O.T. Genesis, I'm in love with the cocoa. As you know, he was talking about chocolate. Don't know what all that white powder is about on the album artwork, though. Who do you reckon used cocoa beans as currency? It was only the blooming South Americans. You know that, though, because you've listened to my episode on sugar that tells you all about it. The value of the cocoa bean depended on the quality. The higher quality of the beans, the higher its value. The quality of the soil the beans grew in and the favourable weather conditions reflected in the beans' quality, and the Aztecs used this currency for small purchases. Like the African peoples, Aztecs also used cloth, but this was usually for bigger trades. Its value grew if it was woven tightly, and it cost as much as 300 cocoa beans. 20 lengths of even loosely woven cloth was enough for an average family to live on for a year. So of course cloth was important, but it was also quite rare to own in large amounts. Aztec children were sometimes used as currency. It was common practice among the Aztecs to sell their children as slaves or even for sacrifice, with an Aztec child sometimes selling for up to 600 cocoa beans. The growing of cocoa beans was regulated by Aztec leaders to control the money flow in the Aztec economy. The Aztecs weren't fucking about with inflation. Would you believe it? We've only gone and made our way to some actual coins. Hammered coins started to appear in the 7th century. They were created by getting a blank disc of metal called a planchet or flan, flan, between two dies and smashing the die with a hammer. Bang! The head of the coin would usually be the head of a monarch, and the tail side varies quite a lot. The penny is generally understood to be introduced into England by King Offa of Mercia. The penny continued to be the sole coin in use in Britain for about 500 years. There are also half pennies and quarter pennies. These were not their own coins though, because they were just normal pennies cut in half or quarters. Across England there were over a hundred mints. Pretty much every important town had its own mint and made its own coins. This was to stop the requirement of large amounts of money being transported around the country along ship roads surrounded by desperate thieves. 
The name of the person responsible for striking the coin, as well as the town name, was on the lettering that was on the tail side of the coin. The king or queen's name was on the head side, unsurprisingly, which can help with identification when they're found by metal detectorists and archaeologists. Coins were liable to suffer from clipping, where naughty people would remove slivers of precious metal. It was difficult to determine the correct diameter of the coin, so this was actually super common. The little snippets would then be melted down into the little silver ball, into a little silver ball, and sold on. I used to love making little solder balls in my systems class at school, such a satisfying little ball you could make. Coins were also vulnerable to sweating, which is when silver coins would be placed in a bag that would be shaken like a cocktail at a posh bar. This would produce silver dust, which could later be removed and collected from the bag. It seems like an absolute effort. If you have a whole bag of coins, are you really going to be collecting silver dust? Counterfeit coins were made as well. Counterfeiters would use mould made from sand to cast melted metal into new coins. To create the mould, they would have to use a genuine coin and press this into the sand to create an impression. The metal that the counterfeiters used might have included silver, but these fake coins would mostly have been made from different metals and then coloured to make them look genuine. The severity of the punishments for counterfeiting have reflected both the seriousness of the crime, but also the difficulty of detecting those responsible. In ancient Rome, counterfeiting was a capital offence and basically treason and could be punished by banishment or slavery if you were lucky or crucifixion if you weren't so lucky. In the early 4th century, Emperor Constantine, who was famous for making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, was just like, fuck it, let's burn them. In 10th century England, under King Athelstan, the forger would lose a hand. But Henry I in the 12th century didn't think that was quite enough. He was suspicious of his coin makers, thinking they were making a little something-something on the side. He summoned them to a Christmas gathering at Winchester, and they rocked up thinking they were going to have a Christmas peacock for a job well done. He actually took the right hand and both testicles from each of them. What a guy. Under Edward I and later kings, death by hanging was the usual punishment for men, with burning and strangulation reserved for women. I mean, hanging is strangulation. Strangulation, right? I had a brief look into what this means, and it seems like it's referring to manual strangulation with hands or cord or something. What is the point of having a different method of strangulation, especially for women? It just eludes me. Three unfortunate 16th century Edinburgh women suffered this appalling punishment, while in 1560 Robert Jack, a Dundee merchant, was hanged and quartered merely for importing forgeries. 19 executions for counterfeiting took in place in 1697, when Sir Isaac Newton of fallen Apple gravity fame, was warden of the Royal Mint. To stop forgeries, Newton introduced milled edges on coins. You know those lines around the edges of coins. This meant that it was super obvious if a coin had been clipped and it made it less valuable. The edges of some coins were also engraved with the words decus et tutamen, which means an ornament and a safeguard. Apparently you can still see this on some £1 coins today. I checked my pound coin on my desk and there is nothing of the sort. Check the rhyme. There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence across a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat which caught a crooked mouse and they all lived together in a crooked house. Yes, this was just an excuse to show off my rap skills, but the crooked sixpence is what I really want to talk about. As well as being clipped and so wetted, coins were also bent. There are a number of reasons why they might be bent. It was made to be kept as a good luck charm, along with many other items which were thought of as bearers of good luck. An old English superstition explained that a bent coin should always be kept in a pocket or purse, and it would ensure that its owner would always have a pocket full of money. I should probably bend one of my coins for luck. 
The crooked sixpence also served another purpose. In medieval times, until the late 16th century, it was custom for a gentleman to bend a copper coin and give it to his beloved as a token of his love and sign of his intention to marry her. The coin was not to be spent, but instead to be carried always by the woman as a demonstration of her fidelity, a constant reminder to her each time she opened her purse. A reminder not to just go and shag other people. If the bloke was that forgettable that she needs reminding with a coin, I doubt it's going to work out in the long run. If a fit milkmaid comes along and gives you a wink, what's a girl to do? The difference between the good luck symbols and those given as love tokens was that they, the ones that were used as good luck charms to bring dollar dollar bills were usually bent through the centre, while those made as love tokens were usually bowed or even cup-shaped. I have an Elizabeth I half-groat from the 16th century that I found out metal detecting. It's a common fact amongst the detecting circles that her face rubbed off because she was disliked, but I could not for the life of me find any evidence of this online. Peasants rubbing coins for luck because of the monarch was seen as close to God is another explanation of coin rubbing. One half of my coin is super rubbed and the other side is perfectly intact, so it definitely makes sense. If anyone knows of any evidence for this theory, I'd love to hear about it. This takes us nicely into a little opportunity to talk about my metal detecting hobby. I've been detecting for about three years now and it's a hobby that I really, really enjoy. I'm the proud owner of eight and a half hammered coins varying in age. I have hammers from Edward II, Henry VI, Mary I, Elizabeth I, and some others that are too worn to be identified. You can see the Henry VI coin on the episode artwork, and this dates from between 1422 and 1461, which is towards the end of the medieval period. You can see his crown along with long, beautiful curly locks. He is described as a pious and studious recluse whose incapacity for government was one of the causes of the Wars of the Roses. Whoops. The coin was photographed and recorded by my local finds liaison officer for Wales, who happens to be one of my very good friends and all-round beautiful human being, Adele Bricking. She puts the recording on the Portable Antiquities Scheme database, which is run by the British Museum and the National Museum Wales. You can find her on Twitter at rk underscore del, so that's A-R-C-H-A-E underscore del with a double L. She shares some incredible things that she registers and is all-round a very good egg. Every year, many thousands of archaeological objects are discovered by us detectorists. Finds recorded with the scheme help advance knowledge of the history and archaeology of England and Wales. It's really too important to make sure your finds are recorded with the scheme and it's a responsible way to detect. Every group has its bad apples, so I ask you not to be so quick to dismiss us all as treasure-hungry thieves. The vast majority of us do it for our love of history and to find some connection to the past. There's nothing like the excitement of finding something that someone hasn't touched for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Card money is money printed on playing cardboard or playing cards, which is used as currency in several colonies and countries, including France, Dutch Guinea, now the South American country the Republic of Suriname, New France, which was part of what is now Canada and the US states of Louisiana and Illinois, and were used from the 17th century to the early 19th century. I'll be focusing on how this developed in New France. That's Canada. These cards were born because of a coin shortage. The colonies, as with everything, ran on the arrival of cash to function. Cash came on ships, and ships were often late or never turned up at all, which leads to angry people working for the crown. In 1685, this bloke high up in the colonies' government created card money by writing face values on playing cards and stamping his seal on them. When the cash ships eventually arrived, these cards could be exchanged for the cash. It was only supposed to be an emergency measure, and it had worked out quite well. 
It was necessary to to return to the card system during the period of 1689 to 1719. New France faced counterfeiting problems with this currency, although counterfeiters could be caned, branded, banished, flogged or even hanged. It was ultimately inflation, however, which led to the decline of the card money in French Canada. The money was produced in a greater quantity than required, in part to offset a failing French economy. Coins were also hoarded. In 1714, card money to a whole value of 2 million livres was in circulation. Some cards were worth as much as 100 livres. Attempts to decrease the value of the cards by half failed, and in 1717 the card money was withdrawn. By 1720 it had been declared worthless. Inflation is a bitch. The king later returned to using card money in 1729 because the merchants themselves were like, give us our card money! This time the money took the form of white cards without colours which were cut or had their corners removed according to a fixed table. The whole card was worth 24 livres, which was the highest sum in card money. With the corners cut off, it was worth 12. Other cuts carried other values. In 1763, another burst of inflation caused card money to be withdrawn forever. There's some really beautiful examples of this card money online with incredibly charming playing card illustrations. We're heading over to Yap Island in Micronesia. Micronesia consists of about 607 islands in the Western Pacific. I'd never heard of this country, so every day is a school day. They are northeast of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. The ancestors of the Micronesians settled over 4,000 years ago. A chieftain-based system eventually evolved into economic and religious culture centred on Yap Island, which is where this next currency evolved. For hundreds of years, the Yapis have been using massive circular stones as currency called ray stones or faith stones. I don't like to be as vague as saying for hundreds of years, but unfortunately in this case I have to, because no one really knows for sure how far back this system goes. We know that they were using this system in the late 18th century because a British ship wrecked on the shores of a nearby island, and the sailors saw the islanders making them. To describe these stones, it's probably easiest to describe them as the shape of a millstone. If that doesn't help you, just think of a donut with a hole in the middle. A side note here is that the best Krispy Kreme donuts are the plain glazed donuts, and this is absolutely a hill I will die on. Back to the stones though. They can range in size quite drastically. The biggest are too big to move unless you're Captain America, and the smallest can fit quite comfortably in your pocket. They range from 3.5 centimetres all the way to 3.6 metres, just weighing over half a tonne. The first question I asked was, if you get paid with this big-ass stone, then how the hell do you move it to your back garden? short answer is you don't. You leave the bugger where it is. Ownership was established by shared agreement and could be transferred even without physical access to the stone. It at least gets written down that this stone no longer belongs to Falmed but is now Falthins, right? Nope! Each stone had an oral history that includes the names of previous owners. The oral history is repeated by village elders and people know who owns each stone. It's like a classic village, everyone knows everybody else's business. In one instance, a large ray being transported by a canoe was accidentally dropped and sank to the sea floor. Although it was never seen again, everyone agreed that the ray must still be there, so it continued to be transacted as any other stone. Such a strange concept. I read an article on the BBC website where the journalist spoke to a chap called Falmed, who said that his family owns five stones of a good size. Apparently a good haul, since many islanders own no stones at all. Each village has a stone money bank that displays raystones that are too big to move. Kind of looks like a graveyard, but without the sad. 
unless you have no stones, in which case it probably is quite sad. Falmed's family has only used its money twice, and once was an apology. We used it for one of my brothers who made trouble for another family, Falmed revealed remorsefully. His brother's marriage had failed. One of the chiefs, his daughter, got one piece of stone money as an apology and they accepted it. When it comes to high ranks, you have to use stone money. The perceived value of a specific stone was based on not only its size and craftsmanship, but also its history. The value also could depend, for instance, on whether it was bought by a famous sailor or whether people died during its transport. It's a bit dark. Currency was never really something I found particularly interesting, but I bought a kid's book about the history of coins from the 70s and something about non-coin currency just sparked an interest. This week I went to the Ashmolean Museum and the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford for my birthday and they have whole sections dedicated to currency so I spent ages looking through them to see if there was anything exciting that I'd missed and it did make me add an extra few bits in. I was lucky enough to see cowrie shells, some small ray stones, glass beads and manila bracelets. I also saw silver fish hook money from Sri Lanka dated from the 17th century, tin money in the shape of crocodiles from Malaysia from the early 20th century and copper plate money from 17th century Sweden. On top of that, I saw just about every coin imaginable from every part of the world, which was just wonderful. What is it that makes coins so lovely? Maybe it's because they're so relatable. Sometimes it's difficult to identify with people in antiquity because we can't put ourselves in their lives that seem so far apart. But we all need to buy things, and people have been using coins for a few thousand years, so it gives us that tangible link. There must be so much that I haven't covered, but as usual, I'm here to give you a crash course in things that stand out to me the most. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. I've set up a coffee account, and I've popped the link in the show notes. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create and I do everything myself. So if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Five star reviews this week. Here we go. Mayor Simka says, great concept for a podcast. I love the idea of tracing a theme across time and place. Lots of fascinating facts. Look forward to hearing more. Chris says, fantastic, relatively bite-sized bits of history. Natalie is an engaging narrator. Topics are interesting. Overall, an extremely solid podcast. Thank you both. That's really, really kind of you to say. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.